Hello listeners, today we're going to talk about consciousness. And don't go, oh groan, it's going to be really philosophical. Because what it's going to be is really physical. We're going to talk about the sensing mind and the feeling mind. And how the two of them together at some point created the thinking mind where we know that we know that we're thinking about stuff. And that maybe because of this thinking mind is why we're social or maybe we're social because of the thinking mind. All of these things today on, hopefully, a very entertaining episode of Blind Insights. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961-2020 to Welcome to Blind Insights, a podcast we call A Haphazard Guide to Living, hosted by philosophy master David Olney and myself, a philosophy student, Tim Whiffen. I'm late at night, so barely consciously talking to David Olney. How are you, David? Barely conscious talkie. I'm good, because for some reason, well, I know why I'm perky, it's because we're recording. And recording is good. Yeah, it's been too long. It was a good little session here uh, this evening. Yep. And today we thought we'd tackle what other philosophers have battled with for millennia um, and, you know, and, and see if we can cover it as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, in the time <laughs> it takes to drink a pint. <laughs> exactly. And we'll be having our pints afterwards so that we can stay as conscious as possible for a topic. During the pinty podcast. <laughs> yeah. The mighty pinty podcast. That's it. So, yeah, consciousness. Do you have any theories? Is that a good question? (laughs) Well, I had, as an undergrad, of course, I had to study consciousness a little bit in my undergrad degree. And studying consciousness in the 90s, I went, yeah, not convinced, go away. The philosophers thought they understood it. I'm like, yeah, nah. The psychologists thought they understood it. I'm like, yeah, nah. You're all just hypothesizing without very much evidence. Mm. And then I revisited it again early in my PhD research and that was the beginning of the embodied and embedded movement. So mm. Colin McGinn and Mark Rollins, I'm like, oh, this isn't there, but at least this is real. We're now talking a brain in a body in an environment and that mm. the body is being affected by the environment and the brain is being affected by what the environment is doing to the body and then the brain is deciding how to make the body do things in the environment to get the best outcome for the organism. I'm like, this is on the verge of being super cool. And then a few months ago now, Antonio Damasio's new book came out, Feeling and Knowing. And he's one of the interesting consciousness researchers, experts, because he keeps evolving. Like I remember reading his early stuff, you know, when I was doing the PhD research in sort of 2003, 2004, and going, hmm, you're an idiot. And not that he himself is an idiot, but the ideas, he was trying to take Mm. ideas from the 90s and make them better. And he genuinely did, but the ideas in my mind were still dead ends. And I don't know why they were dead ends, other they didn't suit my inductive logic of, someone's got a theory, how about we go with the evidence? Mm. And what I really loved about Antonio Damasio's new book a few months ago feeling and knowing is in a four and a half or five hour audiobook is certainly no longer 
he sums up the best arguments and adds his own bits to the best arguments. And I now genuinely believe we have a complete understanding of where consciousness comes from and how it works. And I think that's utterly astounding. Could you give us a summation? I will, because I think it's really important. And I, you know, listeners, all of you, if you're interested, go and get feeling and knowing, because it's just remarkable. So the argument he puts forward in it is, every living creature, no matter how small, senses itself and senses its environment. So if you're a little organism, you know, millions of years ago in a puddle, one side of the puddle is warm, one side is cold, and you know you like the warm side and your food likes the warm side, you're going to sense the warm side and wheel towards it. No thinking required. It's a feedback loop. Warm, warm, good. And you go, warm, warm food. Warm food, good. You know? No, I'm putting words in because I can't help but use them. But this is all without words. This is sense. Now, the interesting thing, too, is this sensory system would not have just been about the outside. It would have been about the inside. So mm. little organism goes, too cold, or too hot, or hungry, or not eat any more food, or go burp and explode. You know, any variation without words. But that became the basis of pretty much all living things. Eventually, we move forward to the beginning of central nervous systems. And we go beyond this sensing mind that senses internal states and external conditions you know, once we've got a nervous system, we get more complicated. Oh, sorry, yeah, central nervous system. We go to the beginning of what he talks about as the feeling mind. And the feeling mind, rather than just sensing the outside and the inside, begins to turn those sensations into what we would call emotions, feelings. Mm. So the classic example he gives in the book, and I've heard him talk about in lectures, is imagine you're in the kitchen cooking dinner, and you're cutting up a beautiful big baguette. And there's a little mouse under the fridge. And the little mouse hasn't found food for a few hours. And it smells the baguette and goes, yum, without using words. It's all just feeling your emotion. And because the baguette's really crispy, crunchy, a bit flicks off the counter, onto the floor, behind you, but where the mouse can see it. But the mouse knows that this is Tim's house and there's a cat. So mouse is going to go through a series of feelings, internally hunger, internally fear, because it knows there's cats in this house, externally food. And the central nervous system via the feeling mind is going to balance up those forces of hungry, afraid, more hungry, think I can make it and it's either going to do the mad dash and get the breadcrumb or if it doesn't the feeling mind will then cause the endocrine system to pump hormones into the mouse to suppress hunger for a while and to lower its mood so it doesn't change its mind and risk getting zapped by the cat mm. so sensing mind turned into feeling mind with the development of the you know the central nervous system then we get further and further into the world of big brained animals and you know there's lots of animals 
that go beyond the mouse. Yeah? The mouse has got a feeling mind, probably doesn't have a thinking mind. But by the time we get to whales, dolphins, birds, monkeys, the great apes, we have, or well, octopi, we have a new thing. We have some level of thinking mind. And the difference with thinking mind, it doesn't just sense internal and external states, and it doesn't just have feelings in relation to those states and what it senses. It also plans. Mm. And that at the very simplest, consciousness is moving from feeling mind to having just a little bit of thinking mind on top to be able to plan. So all living things basically sense. An awful lot of living things feel. And a surprising number also then think because they can plan what they want to do to change their internal sensations or their mm. internal feelings. That is uh, adds some kind of logic to the narrative idea of stream of consciousness. I yes. Think. Like it's a really interesting way to describe it. Yep. And one of the fascinating things that came out of the book that just blew my mind, because, again, never realized it. Like we've talked before about the importance of nerve cells in the brain being wrapped mm. in myelin to make them fire fast and hard as good circuits. Now, the interesting thing is most of the big nerves running through our body have no myelin on them which means as they run through our body, they are sensing what's going on around them. Is there inflammation? Is one bit of our body cold? Have we got an injury in an area? Mm. So we've still got the remains of the early sensing system in ourselves, even though we've got the prefrontal cortex, which is all about thinking how we're going to change our internal sensations, how we're going to respond to external sensations. What are we going to do about emotions? And really important, what the thinking mind lets us do is going, what do I need to do to get more of the emotions I like? <laughs> Which is almost the ultimate initial power of the thinking mind. So watch dolphins play. Watch bonobo monkeys having sex rather than war. And if that's not the conscious mind working out, or the thinking mind working out how to get more of the feeling mind it likes, then I don't know what is. Yeah, that's interesting. So we just discredited um, a lot of... Two and a half thousand years of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, and psychology <laughs> yep. uh, earlier. I was just thinking about, you know, there's um, uh, kind of pub quiz knowledge of us only being conscious of about 10% or no. using, you know, 10% of our brains or whatever. Does that only, is that um, to say that we're only, you know, 10%, let's say, of uh, our um, nerves have the myelin sheathing and then therefore... Most of our better. brain has, you know, sorry, our brain has myelin. Right. So where we do in our thinking of all kinds, but what we've got to remember is there's different kinds of thinking. There's sensing, yeah. feeling, and thinking. Right, I see. Activity. So sensing has never had, you know, words or feelings. It's just sensing. Like, mm. it makes no sense to us. Because if I touch my Apple Watch now, you know, and I feel the amazing sort of texture of the brush titanium, I can't just feel that without 
describing it. Both I get a feeling from feeling it, mm-hmm. and I can describe it in words. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. We're talking about brains that sense and then feel and just act on that without being able to think and use words like we do. So we're in the hardest position because we can you know, think in words about anything that's made it to that level of our brain. Yeah. Sensing brain has forwarded to feeling brain. Feeling brain has forwarded to thinking brain. And the thinking brain goes, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about this. So thinking brain thinks it's thinking. And I think the big lesson to take away from this is no, thinking brain is not thinking. Thinking brain has been given something to think about. Which means our brain is very, very busy. Because yes. your brain is always chattering away at stuff, which means thinking brain is either entertaining itself, thinking about what kind of pizza to have on Friday night, mm. or it's being given something by feeling, you know, feeling brain. Yeah. And okay. in terms of you know, you know, activity of the brain, um, uh, what's his name? David Eagleman made the point in the brain that only about 3% of our brain is what he would call conscious. And in Damasio's term, that means only 3% of the brain is thinking mind. Yep. The question is, and I immediately want to value these things, I am emotionally very attached to my thinking mind because in some ways I feel like it defines my life experience or I, I don't exactly know how to value anything that I'm not currently thinking. Uh, I, I guess I don't know how to, I don't know how to appreciate something that isn't being forwarded to my you know three percent thinking mind. Man, so I don't does that think mean that we, consciousness is the can. higher order? Or, no, yeah, well, no I, I, of course you. Yeah, it wouldn't be. It's like it's it 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 literally just is a, mm. a, a system of binning information until it like requires. Mm. The, so mm. is it the higher order? Like, is this the decision maker kind of it is higher the, order? It is the we know we're making decisions bit. Yeah. So, the classic example I would have given you to you guys in complex problem solving, we talked about consciousness is, you know, your unconscious, which we'll now call feeling and sensing mind, mm. because that, I think there are much better names for it. Definitely. Sensing and feeling mind send signals about being thirsty, mm-hmm. getting more and more urgent. But because we've got the big thinking mind we've got, we get to decide vodka, fruit juice, water, sparkling water, a milkshake. Chippies. Yeah, well, you've gone completely away from... So, you're not going to shut down your dehydration, so sensing mind is going to keep going, <laughs> yo hey, Tim. <laughs> but, oh, chocolate thick shake and chippies. Ah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. But, so, this is the point. I think what I take away from this that I really like is, you know, thinking is what makes us us because we know we're doing it. Yes. But where does the stuff we think about come from? Some stuff is thinking mind entertaining itself, like thinking about philosophy, thinking about words and puzzles and whatever else. But an awful lot of stuff is coming from sensing and feeling mind. And we then have to interpret it and make use of it. But instead of going, oh, it's come from something mysterious. No, it hasn't. It's come from, yeah. You know, this is where I think the link to the embodied embedded movement is so important. Something that pops into our thinking mind has been racing around our body as a consequence of us being in an environment and has bubbled up into our thinking mind because it's important enough that you know it can't get handled on its own. It's not breathing. It can't get handled on its own. It's not scratching an itch, which we just do. 
You can't get the handle on its own. You know, our heartbeat goes the thump, the thump, the thump. Otherwise, we get beep, and it's all over. <laughs> so we we need to be very grateful that sensing, you know, sensing mind and feeling mind are so damn capable. This is it, uh, it's so interesting because you know if those systems don't act appropriately, then you get some kind of decision paralysis because yep. too many things are being forwarded to a system that can't handle that many decisions yep. uh, quickly, um, and therefore it becomes difficult to do things like go to the toilet without peeing yourself. Yep, um, that's well, wild. <laughs> this is where we get into David Eagleman's argument in the brain which is five or six years old now, and I would love to find an interview with David Eagleman responding to Damasio's book. Mm. But he makes the point in the brain that you can burn things into your unconscious. That through executive order and training and discipline, you can say, brain, climb the stairs. Mm. Now, from that point onwards, thinking mind don't have to do anything. It's given the order. Feeling mind, sensing mind can run the body for that practical step. And again, this is this idea in the military um, of, you know, train hard, fight easy. You're burning as many things into your unconscious, into your feeling and sensing mind as possible so that all you've got to do is give an executive order with your thinking mind. You don't have to think how to do it. And, you know, it's an interesting example, listeners. You know, uh, the day before we recorded this, I went out with young blood, my yoga teacher, and played disc golf with him and had mm-hmm. a great time. And in 18 disc golf holes, I probably increased how far I was throwing a disc from I started at maybe five meters. And I was consistently, by the end of the day, getting discs to fly reasonably accurately for up to 30 meters. Wow. Now, compared to young blood who can throw them 90 meters, I'm a little baby disc golfer. Yeah. But the point is, in two hours, I went from it being an absolute cluster to... I was having fun, and the group of people that were doing the round with us, who were absolutely lovely, and hello to everyone, uh, were cheering when I got a nice 30-meter thing right down the middle of the fairway. That's lovely. Because 30 meters versus five, that's thinking mind and feeling mind working together. Because if I'd had to think, how am I going to move my weight from a left foot to a right foot? What height am I going to keep my hand? What's my grip? When am I going to release? Do I flick with my wrist or do my elbow? You can't think about all of them at once. No. You rehearse it, and when it feels about right, the next time you decide, right, I'm going to let go. And it's maybe a little better, maybe a little worse. And if you're lucky, you know, you can work out what variable you changed that time. But that's this thing of burning things into your unconscious in Eagleman's terms. But I'm going to say it's burning things down into your feeling and sensing mind. So you give an executive order, but you know, don't try and think of all the steps because if you do, you'll screw it up. It's too much to think about. Again, how well you drive a car, Tim, you long since stopped thinking about how to drive you're just pointing car and letting everything else go it's so interesting i'm fascinated by the system that allows or facilitates or forwards on information to the point that it becomes an executive order has to go it's so damn cool and who knows how much we'll ever really understand it because all we know is something is suddenly in our head but, you know, listeners, really interesting example. Like, okay, last 20 months, lots of busy days for me between 
what ended up being the masters and two jobs by the end of it. Mm. When I put my thesis in, in the week after, I wrote three blog posts because I had habituated to such a degree that after I get up and do my yoga practice, I sit at a computer and type a thousand words. Mm. So that was the extent to which I had burned something into you know, my feeling and sensing mind. My body wanted to go sit in the chair. My fingers expected to type. My poor thinking mind was having to work out what the hell to type. But my body was ready because that's what I had normalized from mm. June to the last day of October. For five months, that had been most days of my life. I can't help but reflect in a, like, kind of like a meta way about how hard I'm having to focus on the content of what you're saying because maybe there's an order of complexity you know the content of what you're saying right now isn't decipherable without me paying conscious attention to precisely but i can envisage situations where people can talk to you you cannot you may not even consciously register what they're saying but the content of what they've said is so simplistic that you're sensing and feeling mind have taken care of it and you may even be able to recall what they've said without even having consciously registered it at the time or at least being able to heed the warning i think of something as simplistic as um a blood curdling scream or something yep. crying for help or whatever it is yep. and that just turns on your feeling yep your system immediately yep. yeah but your body's on for a challenge or a threat and you, you wouldn't have had to have processed that in the thinking mind. No, and I wonder if this is where the basal ganglia in the brain, the bit that looks for patterns, looks for repetitions of yesterday, if the mm. basal ganglia is the interface between thinking and feeling mind. Mm. Because if the basal ganglia goes, it's similar enough to yesterday, run the video, <laughs> how much thinking mind do we need to run the video? We only need thinking mind to pick up the remote and press a button. It's like Wouldn't minimal this, thinking uh, mind. This would be amazing if we could physiologically measure this. Or see it on brain scans. Uh, I see the act. Yeah, this is the beginning, in my opinion, of us finally being on the right track with uh, understanding consciousness. Like, it, we're finally not fart-assing around. Like, the improvements began with embodied and embedded, and now we're really getting to the point where I think we're on, you know, we're getting a sense of how this works. And what I really like about it is it links us with all other living things more closely. And we might have a more advanced thinking mind, but we have to treat creatures who think a little bit with a lot of respect because they're yep. not as different from us as people would have us believe. You've made an emotional appeal to me there, but um, I, I, I don't have any immediate objections, but I'm also surprised by how well that fits into some of our understandings about things like depression as a warning system. Yeah, like when um, we talked about Jonathan Rottenberg. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, this is why reading Rottenberg immediately after Damasio worked so well. Mm. Because once you understand that feeling and sensing mind are going, dude, are you happy with how things are going? No. Mm. Warn the monkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I'm just fascinated by this idea that as soon as our, our body can't automatically make the most pleasing emotional decision or pr like protective decision even, because obviously two separate steps, that then we have to make a, a different decision about it. And I wonder how that impacts things like our desires for food. So I just want to run this by you as a scenario. Maybe you can validate it and just check out understanding what you've 
talked about so far, David. Um, Happy to try. So we were talking earlier about being dehydrated. Mm. I'm thinking now about, let's say, some being in some ways kind of famished or hungry. Mm. Right now, that means that I can make so many decisions and as we just said with the the dehydration one i can make the wrong decision instead of going for water i can go for chippies Mm. uh, which doesn't help at all um but i'm thinking about our nutrition we have to consciously take care take care of our bodies but i'm wondering whether that's because food now is so available and plentiful that it becomes a matter of um emotion Mm. and the decision becomes far too complex or the content of the decision becomes far too complex for our sensing or feeling minds to just deal with without us having to think about it Mm. no i I reckon you're absolutely onto something because in a world where you just knew you were hungry and gathering took a day or hunting took two days whatever you got at the end of that gathering or hunting that wasn't going to kill you you were going to eat yeah now maybe you decided you really liked something you ate some cool little fruit you didn't have a name for yet we'd call it a blueberry Mm. But you also know the blueberries are four weeks a year and the bears like them. Yeah. So what's your chances of getting near the blueberries reliably in that four weeks when the bears are gorging on them before they hibernate? Yep. Now, do you want to be a bear snack? Yeah. You know, I think about specific food cravings. Wouldn't it be amazing to tap into... Complex carbs, sugars, salt. Yeah. Again, you're... In an environment where the environment can kill you and you're regularly hungry. So you want complex carbs, sugar, and salt as often well, as possible. Seems, it seems to have gone to feeling brain because yep. sensing brain perhaps is, is already taken care of. Like I think that in some ways, would nutrition satisfy sensing brain? Like, I reckon, yes. That- See, feeling brain is about taking risks, like for the mouse, in the yeah. example of the baguette. Feeling yep. brain has to go... I could go back under the fridge here and see if there's a, you know, a mummified cockroach. Mm. Or I can have the braguette crumb. Mm. So to me, I reckon that's where feeling mind comes in. That it's what I, takes you from just getting calories to if there's better calories. Or what does better yeah. calories mean? It means feeling yeah. mind goes woohoo. Yep. Totally. Yep. Uh, wouldn't it be just great if you immediately just had a craving for celery or whatever it is because because <laughs> just because like yeah, you didn't awesome. have to think about it or yep. it wasn't explained because your like your body or your like even your sensing brain was like oh i i could probably yeah. do with some specifically some fiber this will be good yeah. or like i need some vitamin a so like let's have this specific fruit like yep. it's just <laughs> i find it absolutely fascinating that i love snow peas and baby cucumbers because of their textures Mm. So I wonder if in those textures I've found something that my feeling brain really likes. Like the fact that cucumbers are always cool and you've got yeah. the lovely combination of the crispness on the outside and the cold moistness and snow peas have got that beautiful crispness. Like mm. So there's more there than taste. There's also the textural thing. And I think texture must be something that feeling brain is more into than thinking brain. Oh, undoubtedly. I know that they had teams of scientists to develop the exact crunchiness of a chip that's the yep. most satisfying, like uh, a crisp, I mean. If, yeah. You know, 
Yeah, to be to be clear, mm. that is for me to want to believe it, it. I'm sure it has to be falsifiable, and I'm sure I guess you could. Though it's not really science, though, is it? So, but like to me, that it, it just immediately makes sense. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I want to test it against a bunch of different things and see what interesting mm. ways I could think about it. Where does this decision? Where does the buck stop? Yeah. Um, How did it get to my head? Am I simply rationalizing? something that feeling mind is already getting on with or am i getting some say in this and can i have more say and do i even want more say mm. so yeah, an interesting thing yeah you know, now that the thesis is gone and the masters is finished and i can do my yoga practice not thinking about anything but yoga yep so in some ways i'm able to far more tap into feeling mind going this little muscle in your left hip doesn't want to stretch well Let's torture the little bastard. <laughs> so the, the fun and games between sensing and feeling mind, having a really good sense of what's going on in my body and thinking mind, making the decisions what to push just a bit harder mm. to get some of my flexibility back I've lost by sitting still so much. Yeah. Now it's coming back very quickly because I can now, when I practice, all I'm focusing on is practice. It's beautiful. Yep. So it's thinking mind literally going to visit feeling and sensing mind in their absolute habitat, me on the mat. The whole world is just my body on a yoga mat. Mm. To finish, I want to ask a quick question and then perhaps a longer question. How would you describe consciousness in this model? Would it just be purely thinking brain? Yeah, I, I, I struggle with that too. So... I think the power in this model is to realize some things are thinking brain entertaining itself, some things are thinking mind. And sorry, I'm using brain and mind interchangeably. Mm. I think the reason I'm doing that is because I don't think there's any separation. A mind yeah, is just what a brain does. So I love the fact that some things are thinking mind going, ooh, I could think about this. Other things are thinking mind going, ooh, this has suddenly popped into me and now I'm going to think about it. I just love the idea that maybe we'll never know for sure, but we can have a better idea of what's us playing with ideas versus mm -hmm. our body giving us information to act on. I just love that contrast. So you touched on perhaps what my second question is, which is how much of this is physical? You you suggested that you know, the mind is just what our brain does. So embodied makes it and embedded makes it sound very physical but um i, I guess most people still describe a mind as something that is non-physical its activity is entirely electrochemical and existing in a physical entity yeah but the fact that we can think about thinking yeah that's what makes the thinking mind what we call consciousness as using words like even when i'm describing the mouse under the fridge I'm still using words and I'm painting pictures with words. Mm. And I'm sure most of the listeners can imagine the mouse under their fridge in their kitchen. Mm. That's the power of thinking mind and consciousness. Is that I can share something with you just by talking. And you can pick it up just by listening. And they're sharing something with me that takes it even further. Without us mm. being in the same room, pointing at the same fridge. Again, it's like combinatorial ontology without having to be in the same space. That's the power of consciousness. That we can build a world bigger than anything we've individually experienced by okay. talking to other people in other places who we trust and making the world bigger by thinking about the information we're getting. 
So no wonder we're so kind and social. I, I think we have to be to make sense of how enormous all this can be. I, I'm now extremely interested as to whether one was a result of the other. Is consciousness and a evolutionary adaptation to the need to be social to survive or are we socially ah. surviving because we've evolved that way or we evolved that way because it would be better for fascinating us? point in david mccraney's book how minds change he has a couple of chapters on the argument that reason doesn't exist to convince yourself reason exists only because it works in groups how are you going to convince the group how's the group going to convince you and the evidence is we do far better making sense of things together than we ever do independently. I, mm. why do we love talking on the podcast and having guests on? Because yeah. we get to interrogate each other in a, in a kind way yeah. and get to a bigger, better place than we could get on our own. So I don't know whether the chicken came first or the egg with your question, but I definitely think that consciousness is all about empowering the group which empowers us as individuals and the more we're empowered the more we empower the group so it's a virtuous circle i think mm. it fits very well with a lot of anthropological yes. data as well which i find more so, convincing because mm -hmm. it connects the emotional and the thinking and says that culture is what happens when you live in an environment. So it puts the embodied and the embedded in. So to me, anthropology is so messy because it has all the important things in there that we barely understand. Mm. David, I, I'm still struggling with the physicalism. I, I'd love any any extra insight that you might have. Like, is is all of this happening physically? Could, could, could it ever be measured? Deleuze and Guattari, two brilliant French philosophers... They talked about this thing called the plane of imminence. And it's like the, the plane where they would play with philosophical ideas. And because they talked all the time, they believed that in a sense, their plane of imminence is in each other's head. You know, Deleuze had one, Guattari had another, but they were similar enough that if they play with something cool in their head, they could explain it you know, to the other person to play with in their head. Mm. So it's all physical, but it transcends the physical because you can share it. So it, it's yeah. like a computer. A computer runs. But how do we get a beautiful picture on the screen or beautiful sound or whatever else? You need the hardware, but it's more than the hardware. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like the... Uh, perhaps use not an entirely relevant metaphor here, cross-motor metaphor. Um, the, it's like the visible light spectrum. If you could see Wi-Fi, it would consume you. Yeah, it'd be too much. What would you do with it? Yeah. So it's in some ways, it's a good thing that you can't see it. Maybe there's... Like if we had all that. the sense mind, feeling mind data, knowingly. Oh, yeah. That yeah. would be that'd be horrible. But, but then equally... Maybe, if we had none, it would be horrible. So we have just yeah. the right amount. Just but, enough but to trigger the, thinking. The, the physical element of it. Yeah, maybe it's... Maybe there is, maybe I'm a dualist. Maybe there is something about our real sensing, feeling mind, a real physiological state that just simply doesn't have the tools to see what is happening consciously because we would just be, we are, we're sort of like colorblind to it. It's, it's, it's yeah. on a frequency that we can't see. We've got what, I, what we needed to survive mm. and a bit more because of the sheer randomness of some things worked, some things didn't. Some things helped us be successful socially. 
So yeah. you've got to wonder, are there any examples of creatures with a reasonable amount of consciousness that aren't social? Oh, man. Look, the great thing is we're interested in this at the time where the answers are getting real. So at least from now on, if there's a new book or a new cool documentary every year, we can just keep revisiting this. Now it's yeah. actually got somewhere credible. Well, let's get a guest on. Um, I think that will be something to, to explore further. This has been a fascinating conversation, David. I'm going to have to go and, and think on this. But for now, my conscious mind is, is running at capacity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I felt when I listened to Antonio Damasio's book. I listened yeah. to it twice in two days because I'm like, yes, someone's explained this in a way that my inductive brain trusts, <laughs> my, my inductive logic trusts. Well, that's a big feat in this area, I think. I think so. Some, any final comments? Listeners, don't ask me hard questions about this because I'm still learning. Ask me simple questions. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you, David. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If the ideas of this episode have inspired you, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. Do them a favour so we can make a better informed and connected world. Thank you to Solstice Podcasting for use of their studio. If you're interested in making your own podcast, find out more at solsticepodcasting.com.au.